All right. Welcome back, everybody, to another Learning Tech Talks, where we are continuing to live at the intersection of business technology and the human experience. I am back after a much-needed break. So for those of you who were celebrating Thanksgiving, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, it was nice to be off for a bit, but uh, also looking forward to getting back. And we're coming back strong today. We are going to be talking about really some of the practical implications of where AI is starting to transform work. And uh, for those of you, just a quick update, for those of you who aren't subscribed to the Substack, if you do not catch the full conversation and you want to catch the sound bites or the biggest highlights, make sure you're subscribed to that so you can catch those afterwards. But uh, today, the long form conversation is uh, I'm having this with Josh Penner, and he is riding both sides of the fence in that he's running a technology company focused on AI while at the same time running a team of 50 and navigating what it looks like for work to change as well. So Josh, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah. Uh, happy Thanksgiving yeah. late and happy to be here. Yeah. Happy late Thanksgiving. And I forget, where are you located? The Pacific Northwest. Uh, I, you know, the further away you get from Seattle, the more you just say Seattle, but let's just say Seattle. <laughs> so Unrelated to our topic, it reminds me a little bit of when I lived in the Chicago area. I say Chicago area because to anybody who was in Chicago, when I told them what suburb I lived in, they're like, you don't live in Chicago. That is not Chicago whatsoever. But to anybody else outside of Chicago, if I said, well, I live in this suburb, it's kind of here between, they're like, oh, so you live in Chicago. So I just started saying Chicago, but then quickly found that... Uh, only Chicago residents were the ones who took offense to me saying that. <laughs> That's fair. You know, I, I, it is relevant to this conversation to say the exact city I live in. But of course, most people aren't going to know where it is. Most people in Washington State don't know where it is. But um, I'm <laughs> from the city of Ording, which I'm the mayor of, which is part of this conversation, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. And um, where's Ording? If you're in Washington state, you see Mount Rainier, if you can see the picture behind me. And oh, so that's a, so even though it's a virtual background, it's a legit virtual background of where you physically are located. Well, more or less um, anywhere between you and Mount Rainier is where Ording is pretty much. So you fly into <laughs> Seattle, you see Mount Rainier and you, you look in Mount Rainier, you're seeing Ording, like I, mayor of the mountain. You can yeah. just call me like, that's, that's where I am. Okay. I got it. I got it. All right. So mayor, as a, it, well, I mean, yeah, you're, you're dual, you're dual rolling this. So why don't you give me a little bit of background in this because you've got this technology. Well, tell me a little bit about the company, but then also, like you said, you're also the mayor of your town, which I have to imagine that's straddling two sizable responsibilities. It is. And you know, it, it's important. Those responsibilities stay separated, but the I'd say I, I know about the problem because of being the mayor and, and I'm trying to solve it by being the CEO of this company. And okay. so just, you know, I'm, I'm the mayor of Ording. I'm also CEO of Inquisio AI. And what I know from being mayor is that information management in public agencies, municipalities, particularly cities, counties, school districts, fire districts and such is an absolute mess. Um, and it costs, it costs us billions of dollars a year across the United States, uh, just not being able to access information timely. And, it, it, it's a big frustration point for um, our constituents and um, no one is really solving this problem. And it, it seems amazing that no one is, but you start thinking about government, you, the first, you know, the terms you don't think about with government are innovation. 
And yeah, those aren't nor normally two things that people synonymously put in a sentence. Exactly. And um, that means that the things that in your private business, you might come to expect, say, uh, a co-pilot with your Outlook or something like that coming, sure. coming out, uh, you're not going to really see the public sector grab onto that very quick. You know, it, it took okay. the public sector till easily the mid 2000s or maybe 2010 to make websites pretty standard for these agencies, you know, so they're, they were okay. 10 years behind the curve on that. So the change um, curve is a little bit, well, a little bit significantly lacking, or at least you're just behind the curve a little bit more in the public sector. Yeah. I, I make a statement. I don't know. It's a truthy statement, at least that, you know, governments, particularly cities and counties are risk mitigation factories. Like they exist to identify the least risky path and try to try to pursue it. And gotcha. to do that, you, dip, you typically have shared accountability, a, a very long process where you analyze, observe, do reports. It's expensive, but it's not as expensive as making mistakes. Like if you've got a okay, got your own personal risk tolerance, imagine your government's risk tolerance is a thousand times less. Yeah. Well, and I think it goes back to one of those things where it's just a different approach to running things in that, mm -hmm. you know, high risk people with a high risk tolerance may spend less on overhead process, things like that. But then those unexpected costs that can come when risk hits can be exponential versus, Hey, like let's mitigate any risk. I mean, I came from pharma, which is, again, I spent a good chunk of time there, low risk tolerance. You know, there's high reward in some regards, but there's also a very low risk tolerance around certain things because the costs can be extremely high if you get it wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, nope. you see a, a relationship between that and the cost of doing business often. Right, right. Now, my question to you is this. Did you start with the, you know, kind of interest in politics and getting into that local politics first? And then the company followed when you got in and went, wow, I see so much opportunity. Or was it the other way around? Did you get into the tech side of things and look at, hey, how can we optimize this? And then took that. Which Which came first, chicken or the egg? Hmm. Yeah, that's a chicken and egg statement. Like I've always been interested in technology <laughs> and I, I'd been a solopreneur for yeah, most of my professional life um, in one form or another doing tech-based work or marketing, but with a tech angle, that sort of thing. Um, okay. This particular problem, you know, that we're solving with Inquisio is this is 14 years after I've been elected. Right. So uh, it's, okay. It the the company in relationship to my experience in government is is very new. Um, okay, where I think we're just over a year old at this point. Okay, okay, got it, got well because that's what I was going to ask. So you've been mayor, you've been mayor for fourteen years. You said, I uh, no, I was on the city council before that and a, a planning commission okay. before that. And I've had other minor uh, roles during that during okay. that period as well. Out of curiosity, are you? Because it's always interesting to me when I talk. I love having diverse conversations with people from all over the map. Was politics, local politics, always something that was of interest to you? In a way, I, you know, I didn't know way. that I could. I didn't. I certainly had no personal vision of myself as being a council member or mayor or knowing what these things were. Like, I, I think I fundamentally knew from a civics perspective what they were, but um, okay. I, I'd always been interested in how 
people interact. I, you know, one of the things I've learned in my role in, as mayor, as a council member before that is most of what I learned in politics came from being in the Marines, being a, a E nothing in the Marines. We call it a Lance Corporal, which means you really have no rank. You do have to get things done though. And so it really relies on your ability to create relationships. Um, okay. You know, if you think about, I don't know if you remember MASH, uh, the, the, oh, of course. the MASH and, and sure. uh, Radar Radar had like no rank. Radar O'Reilly is one of the main characters and he had no rank, but he still yeah. had to get things done. And so there's, I mean, that's one of the underlying themes is the hijinks of him getting people to do things that, that outrank him. And that's what- Yeah, yeah, because he really had no power or authority or ham hammer to, you know, yeah. gavel to bang to say this needs to get done. It was like, well, but I'm still responsible for getting this done. So I got to get really creative in leverage relationships and all sorts of things to actually accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Yeah. And that's, that is the job. That's the job that I have to do. But if I was always interested in that, I don't know. I'd say that I, there was a lot of happy accidents in my life that led me to being in the right place at the right time. And um, I was still in the Marines and I was running at night and saw that there was an open position for council. Somebody had left the seat early. So the, the city council got to appoint a new council member in the interim and I applied for it and I lost and I'm super competitive. Um, and, <laughs> and so I thought, well, this is a game I don't understand. I want to know the rules. So I showed up to every, I meeting. want to know the rules so I can win. <laughs> yes. I showed up to every meeting, showed up to every committee meeting, all the different pieces. And I know it now looking in hindsight, why the mayor asked me, uh, it's because I was present all the time, but the mayor asked me if I would be interested in joining the planning commission, which is a pretty important um, volunteer opportunity in, okay. in most communities. And um, I said, yes, of course, and joined the planning commission, took another whack at council. This time uh, got elected to the council and spent six years as a okay. council member and then uh, ran for mayor. And okay. uh, so I don't know that I was always interested in it. I think I had a, a tendency towards it and that this has just been, uh, you know, a, a river that my boat is on at this point. Okay. So, and part of why I wanted to give into some of the, you know, backstory behind this is I'm always interested in some of the parallels that we see across things where, you know, I talk to people from a lot of different industries, a lot of different backgrounds, and there can be a tendency to think, well, it's really different over here. The way we do things is the challenges we face are different. And in some cases, that's true. And then in other cases, you go, actually, that's a very similar problem to what's being solved, you know, universally. So I'm curious, as you got into this, because I think this is going to help shape some of the discussion around where AI really has an opportunity to optimize some of this is, as you got into it, you hit on it a little bit, but as you dug more into the municipal government side of things, what were some of those just straight up things that you went, why is this so hard? Or why, why is this so inefficient? You know, one of the things that has been a learning experience for me, and we touched on it just briefly a couple a bit ago about risk mitigation, is that much of the time our actions in government are centered around taking the least risky of two paths that have some okay. inherent risk in it, or two, three, four paths. But you try to whittle down the number of paths you can take and try to find the least risky path. But at the end of the day, you may get sued. At the end of the day, you may, you know, something may not work out. Some assumption may be extraordinarily wrong. And so the what a lot of the work that you do is 
about value proposition of how how much do you expend to try to identify that least risky path? You know, do you okay. commission a report or a study? Do you set off the time that you have to make a decision? Do you explore the what if I don't questions? You know, at, at some point, somebody has to make a decision and um, you've got to move forward. But when do you have to do it? And I think for me, the aha moments really centered around why are we doing this this way? And are we really thinking about it in a in net present value perspective? You know, if we're going to commission this report and it's going to cost $100,000, is our risk profile of this decision more than $100,000? Something like that. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think those are the things that really got me thinking about why do we do things this way and are there better ways to do it? And I think everybody goes into public service charging ahead. They put it in their voter profile. I'm going to change everything. And then you see it most of the time, <laughs> they're not able to change anything um, because reasonable, smart people before them also tried to change it or establish. The That's system. similar. Right. It's not like nobody ever thought yeah. about these same challenges and wanted to fix them. I think that's one of the things that surprises me is that, and the system itself, it, it kind of tempers people. You know, they they go in yeah. charging ahead. They don't realize they need to build a coalition of support. And then they're just one person on an island. They take two or three whacks by themselves and realize they're not moving forward. And then by the end of their term, they're typically just, you know, uh, marking time. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be cynical, but no. you know, there's there's a a a there's a process you need to learn in every organization and every structure. It's well, and I think based on, based on what you're saying with this, and I think this is where there's some of these parallels to it is the same is very true on the corporate sector, you know, and the same is true on the higher education sector and the K-12 sector, you know, having kind of worked across all of those, you see similar things where there are inherent problems. There are things that have just been built into the system and it's not that people don't care or don't want to do anything about it. It's just that sometimes people are, have a struggle figuring out how, but then you will get someone who comes in and goes, well, I'm going to fix this by myself and come in, you know, Maverick, John Wayne, thinking they're just going to you know, fire some things off and boom, fix the system as though that's really all it's going to take only to find themselves frustrated and going, okay, well, that didn't go quite according to plan. Well, I, I think there's a big parallel here, and it really always comes down to execution. There yeah. is no lack of great disruptive ideas. What there is a lack of is the execution on those ideas. And uh, you, you'd say that for politics, you say it for private sector, is that, yep. um, and I, you know, I've had the privilege to experience both, is that you've got just this great churn of, people in the public sector that are trying to introduce new ideas. They're, they're going to do things different, but for some reason or another, they're unable to execute. Um, but private sector too, you see the churn of companies come and go and some of them, some of them catch hold and they change the world. And then 15 years later, they are actively campaigning. They're the same. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're campaigning. Well, sometimes those big ones that so change that the world at one point. Them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I've worked for companies that were the game changers at one point that just over time became the curmudgeons that were actually inhibiting innovation in the mm -hmm. industry. They actually became the very thing that they set out to 
you know, disrupt when they first got their moonshot. Well, I think we're making a good argument that maybe people need to have some sort of a clock to move on. Right. Uh, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> going to suggest term limits or, or an age limit. And I'm just saying that maybe we all need to recognize in ourselves when it's time to move on. Yeah. Yeah. So as you look at some of this stuff, because the reality is, and I actually want to go back to this risk mitigation thing, because I, so much of what you said about what some of these things are, are again, the parallels are very similar. And I think as we look at these, it'll start to help with some of the AI pieces, at least where I see AI coming in to help with some of this stuff. Because what you just described, going back to your example of, you know, okay, we're considering doing this thing. Let's run a report. You know, let's get a report done on this. It's going to cost $100,000. And that's maybe not the exact same process you might see in the corporate or academic sector, but a similar type thing. We think we want to do this. And the way we always do it is we do this to mitigate XYZ risk, to assess the risk. You know, in a corporate, it might be we bring in a consulting firm to do a, an analysis of, you know, whatever. In academic, it may be something different. It, it's different, but it's really the same thing. Mm -hmm. And going back to it, sometimes that question is never asked of, <laughs> is the risk we're potentially mitigating in greater cost than what we're actually investing in type of thing. It's just, it's almost just this inherent process that we go through to do something. And, you know, as you look at this, where do you see some of these opportunities or where, as you've done this in government and you've gone, you know what, Hey, how do we get better at assessing some of those risks? Cause I think risk mitigation and assessment is key no matter where you are. Where do we get better at mitigating risk in a in a public uh, sector? Or yeah, like so, you as you look at some of these things and you look at what you're doing to try and improve this, what are some of the areas you're zoomed in on that? And in some ways, how are you sure. seeing technology help with that? Well, I really the impetus behind starting the company uh, was around an area where there's a tremendous amount of risk that is just simply unanswered right now. And we, we call it uh, information access, but it, it comes down to every document that your government has, everything it creates every day, say a, a city of 10,000 creates 500 documents a day, emails, social media posts, um, just notes or whatever, um, transcripts from meetings, all that stuff is a record that you typically as a citizen have a right to look at should you make the request. Mm. And a lot of people do make requests for basic information. There really? Is, I mean, well, so this is fascinating to me in some ways. So like yeah. literally all of those are considered public record that someone, mm -hmm. if they really had an interest could say, I want to know what this is. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I guess we're kind of setting it up as if you, know, you might just want to see somebody's email, but typically these are, Driven no, by something. Yeah. It's driven by stuff. Somebody's trying to figure out right. what's going on. Yeah, for some reason. And usually it's not antagonistic, but no. Um, you know, there there is a big risk factor for um these public agencies and not producing it, especially municipal agencies like cities, counties, school districts, and such. Um, there's typically pretty hefty fines for failure to produce those records in a timely manner. City of, or no, it was Pierce County in Washington just settled a $250,000, uh, settled for $250,000 on just some basic information. Um, City of Tacoma, $5 million because um, 
they didn't realize that a records request had come in. And you add this up and you're looking at $500 million a year across the US just in fines for failure to produce these records. And then, you know, that is, that's on top of the five to $6 billion a year that we spend as cities staffing up to find these records. And it, you just keep adding the Bs, the billions, the billions, the billions. And this is an incredibly expensive problem that has a failure rate of 10%. And you wouldn't accept a 10% failure rate in anything. Why would you accept it for your government? And still nothing's being solved here. There has to be a better way to access information and provide it for the public. And if you're able to create a window into this information that people can access and understand and find what they're looking for, you're de-risking uh, you know, the, the 90,000 agencies across the U S that are required to produce these records, right? You're creating massive okay. de-risking in that, that environment. Okay. So let me break this down and then we'll unpack this because I think to me, this is part of, you know, my goal in some of these future episodes that I have, including this one to kind of help people see how you can deconstruct this stuff and reconstruct it in different ways. So if I'm understanding the problem statement correctly, Similar, similar challenges to in a corporate sector, but different in that, you know, so anything created on, on a municipal government level or on a government level is technically public record, which makes sense. So let's say there's a zoning meeting about something and somebody's impacted by how new zoning laws are put in place. And they say, hey, I want to see the records for mm -hmm. what this was so that I can better understand how this decision was made and what was discussed something like that. Like you said, it's not somebody going, I want to see Josh's email type of a thing antagonistic. It's somebody who legitimately has, they're looking at building new commercial property. They want to see what the new zoning laws are and they want to yeah. see how did we come to the conclusion on how we decided this type of a thing. So they put in a request and there's an obligation as part of the municipal government to say, you need to be able to provide that. Or there are consequences to that just based on how things are structured and I can imagine that is massively time intensive and resource intensive, not only to create all of the records for literally everything you do, but then also the channels and the pathways for optimization of, well, how does that request come in? How do we make sure someone is there to get the request, process the request, then have to go find the information from wherever it is managed, then make sure that information gets back and the loop is closed? Is that is that a fair, at least to some degree, summary of the problem statement? Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Um, you know, I, I would add that in any similar organization to the ones that we're talking about, you're going to see at least 10% of the staff is just dedicated to, to this records problem and probably 20% okay. of all staff time expended. So it's an amazing amount of effort. So it's a large amount of human resources and just time <laughs> and capital spent on people there to be available to find this stuff. Oh, absolutely. And okay. that's the internal cost. You know, every every opportunity cost that your government takes also has a, a personal cost to the constituents um, okay. and opportunity lost as well. Well, and I'm and I'm guessing just based on our conversation so far, from a government standpoint, given low risk tolerance is a theme. The threshold, because in an organization that has a higher risk tolerance, they may then staff and resource it based on kind of the minimum, you know, a very aggressive approach to how many people do we really need? And they might take a minimum viable approach. 
government's mm. probably not going to take that approach because that introduces too much risk. Is that fair? Because it'd be like, well, a corporation may go, ah, we only need one person because chances are we're only going to deal with this. A government may say, I don't know that we want to run that thin because if we get overburdened, the risk to our organization, if we don't have enough people resource to do this is greater than it may be to a different organization. Well, you know, it, it's like water, water forming to the container or liquid forming to the container it sits within is that okay. you've got the different, you know, 50 different states have 50 different sets of regulations and how long you can take to prolong something out and how you, how you can delay it. And so you, I think an agency is going to staff the amount that they need to, to fit within those laws. And so if the laws say that you can, you can delay something for up to two years, if you give them reasons, then you're going to have okay. enough staff to get people things within two years. And okay. so you're baselining um, and doing workforce planning, just like any company where you go, well, what is the time frame by which we have to do this? What's the volume of requests? What kind of resources might we need to be able to accommodate that? I, I mean, you'd like to think that you're planning it out, but it, it more is a, you know, you, you figure it out as you're going, how many you need. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Well, and I mean, I think about this going back to, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> It brought me back to some of my days in pharma where I remember when the FDA would show up at, you know, the facility and go, we're doing an FDA audit and we need to find. And literally there were people whose full-time jobs were to do nothing but be at the ready. So if FDA showed up, you're there to pull documents, pull people, schedule meetings, coordinate all these things. And it was I mean, it was a massive time suck. And again, there were yeah. people who were dedicated to nothing more than just that. So we're talking about that on an even larger scale. Yeah, well, I, I can't talk about how big pharma is, um, but I can say it's it's the largest problem, I think, in, in local government across okay. the U.S. Okay. So then as you look at that, because I'm thinking about this, so you look at what you're doing with your company on the outside. To me, this just seems like ripe for technology to help, but I'm sure I'm sure you're also dealing with, and you've got this risk tolerance of, well, how much do we adopt new technology to solve some of these problems? So where are you looking at that now and going, you know, how can we use technology to help with that? Because you're talking about, you know, changing workflows, changing processes, changing the way people's jobs are structured. Absolutely. Um you know, uh, we are trying to frame this in the opportunity cost framework is that would you rather have 10% of your staff chasing down records or would you ha rather have them doing higher quality work that you hired them for and maybe be able to utilize some of that for additional, you know, co-responders or police officers or parks people, whatever, whatever it is your vision entails. Um, it probably doesn't entail people looking for records. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, and those people are incredibly important, but like, we don't have rooms of calculators either anymore because we have the ability to have calculators. And so there is a time and point where emerging technology is going to change how we're doing work in government. I think that we need to embrace certain emerging technology faster because the risks are coming at us much faster than previous evolutions of of technology, you know, the, the risk of, 
the risk of mail fraud to mail is just like you, you might lose $5. The risk of spam to email is you might lose a couple thousand dollars or somebody might get a password. And that could, that could be detrimental. It's not world changing, but the risk of not adopting something in the emerging AI era that is roughly equivalent to what nefarious actors would use is catastrophic for organizations and probably for societies. Um, and so uh, I think that we in the public sector, the, the people that we're, we're trying to build these relationships with to upscale their ability to integrate this new technology much faster than they previously have, um, it, it is a survival situation that they don't realize is coming their way. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious how how that's being received as you push some of this, because again, this is not a problem unique to the public sector, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the number of conversations I've had over the last 12, 18 months, specifically just on this. I mean, AI has been coming and there have been disruptive changes happening for a long time, but I would say the last 12 months have probably been more intense than they have in quite a while in terms of people legitimately going fundamentally my job is either they're viewing it as completely at risk or it's significantly at risk for disruption i just quoted um i was just reading some research by linkedin about you know how much generative ai is going to disrupt people's work and I think that it was saying only 45% of people's skills are insulated from disruption to this. And I actually think that's a pretty conservative, I think that's a very conservative number. I would actually say, I think it's much higher than that in terms of that. So as you know, obviously you're as the founder of this company, probably more bleeding edge than maybe other folks in the public sector. How's that being received by the people that you work with, where you start talking about you know, the implementation and the use of technology to potentially automate or eliminate work that people are doing today. We were speaking at the League of California Cities annual conference and a council member from, I think it was Los Angeles, asked um, one of my team members a question uh, roughly around how does this work into displacement? This idea of, you know, uh, somebody doing a job is going to be replaced by this technology. And, yep. you know, we, we had to think about that, but it really comes down to, and I don't, I can't speak to other sectors, but I'm going to assume most people feel that they're oversubscribed. Um, I can tell you yeah. in, in the public sector, every one of us has way, has, I don't know, two or three times as much work as we can get to. And so we're constantly yep. in a state of triage. And, you know, our state of triage has to be measured and identified and we have to produce it for records purposes. Uh, but it is, is still just way more work we can get to. And to the extent that we have at some point the equivalent of a small staff, a virtual staff working for us through these tools, we can get to that work faster and do better at, at, at doing it. Like we can do the work better and faster and address that mountain. Now, do, are we creating bigger mountains with AI in the back end? Probably too. So, yeah. um, um, but, you know, I, I think when uh, we talk to other communities, it, it there is the concern of, well, what's this gonna, you know, is this gonna displace our entire staff? Um, and I, I think that you gotta be honest that yes, there's going to be a change in the makeup of your staff at some point. Um, 
but the work still needs to get done. And I think uh, they ultimately, especially in, in municipal organizations, folks are mostly pragmatic. Um, they exist in their roles to solve a problem that is defined by some law somewhere. And um, having better tools to do that, that are resistant to the, I'd say the antagonistic actors that are trying to move against those those rules um, are seen as very helpful. So the public sector right now is starting to really wrestle with what's a good policy. And so you've got your laws and you've got your policy, which is like how you carry out the laws. Yeah, you know, there's no law that really takes into account AI because yeah, that's why I was curious how you're handling yeah. that because that's that's a challenge that I think even any sector right now is dealing with is most companies don't have good policies you know, or law, whatever you want to call them in your organization, yeah. governing, what do we do about this? You know, and I've seen companies go from one extreme to just, we're just cutting the cord to any sort of generative AI technology, which I think is a fatal mistake. It's pretty stupid, to, but whatever. It's pretty stupid, but you can do it, I guess. You can say we're yeah. not going to. Um, but I then I've seen other ones just go, well, this is just so ubiquitous we're just not going to do anything. And I think that's a mistake too, because it's just leaving people to figure things out on their own. But I know that you're in an industry that the stakes can in some ways be higher or it can be more complicated to navigate. So how are you navigating some of those policies around? Well, what do we do with this to start to mitigate it? So we don't just say, well, this is just too much. Well, I, you know, I, I think what I see right now is people just everyone's looking around to see what emerges from you know, yeah. the Miller and like city of Seattle issued a, a policy statement on AI that was, pardon me, that was uh, pretty decent, actually. You know, it, was, it talked yeah. about some of the potential risks and um, and a process for implementing new tools in the organization and how they have to go through the organization's uh, rules or processes, even if you buy like a $5 add on to your browser, that sort of thing. Um, the other extreme is like the state of Maine that put a moratorium on anything generative AI, which is, and I said stupid, but I'll, I'll just plant my flag and say, it's my opinion that it's foolish to be too, too hard in the extreme on any, any particular aspect of this because everything is so new. I guess the way I look at it in my organization and um, I, you know, I can only speak from my, my perspective is that um, personal responsibility is not obfuscated by implementation of new tools. And I, I can't imagine a policy around Grammarly usage or spell checks usage, uh, yeah. but those tools <laughs> dramatically improve my staff's ability to communicate and my ability yeah. to communicate. And yep. They are de facto a, a, an editor in somebody's pocket, right? They're a staff of yep. one in your pocket that you utilize to inc improve your communication. And even Grammarly right now, like there's an AI integration with Grammarly. And I, oh, I know. I, yeah. I haven't used yeah. it. But Grammar, Grammarly Go is, is yeah. a fairly effective generative AI add-on to Grammarly to actually help with your communication abilities. Right. And that's that's how how quickly and subtly this stuff is is starting to integrate. So the idea that we're gonna just, you know, cut the cord on generative AI and our tool usages, that's that's kind of where my my flag planted of stupid is, is that 
You're going to tell me. No, I, I would agree. Bad. I would agree that foolish. Yeah. yeah. If we want to use a more, you know, politically correct term, like I, sure. I would say foolish is just the way to do it because I've spent talked to organizations who've said, well, we've just banned chat GPT. And I go, if you think that conclusively has blocked generative AI from your organization, you do not understand how pervasive this technology is in just about anything. I mean, I just even think the platform I'm streaming on right now, LinkedIn, you go to write a message in LinkedIn messaging, there's a thing that can say, hey, help me generate a response to this type of a thing or write a post, help me create a post. So to try and simply say, we're just going to not do it is, is foolish. Right. I think, you know, the, the long-term policy ultimately is going to come down to where, where people in your organization belong in the mix. And they ultimately are the agent of responsibility always. And just like if you were to, if you were to send out a piece of communication, maybe you're a director and you're communicating with me and, or to the public, and it had spelling errors and grammar errors and math errors, you know, I wouldn't blame the computer you're typing it on. No, uh, I wouldn't blame your staff. You know, it wouldn't be your clerk. It wouldn't be your your five employees that you have on your team that are responsible for that. My my focus and the public's focus. Well, the public's focus would probably be on me, but my focus would did would internally say, you know, one, why didn't I catch this before it went out? But two, what is the like? Do you know how to write? Um, is this something that we missed? Do we need more education? Like, there's a person in there. I'm not looking to fix the computer. Um, you know, yeah. with AI, there might be a little bit of, can we adjust the model? Is there some error with the model? But there should always be a, an agent of responsibility that's a human right now, at least um, in the mix. And I think that that is more sustainable policy that is going to be more future proof than let's say this technology is what we're running forward with. This one, we're not going to. We don't know what the technology is going to look like in 12 months. This is no. faster than No, and if, and if the last 12 months have been any indication of yeah. what things are going to look like. It's impossible. I was asked the other day on a panel, where do you think we'll be in six months? And I'm like, I've got some reasonable predictions based on what I'm seeing and what I'm interacting with. But to be quite honest, if you'd asked me at the end of 2022, if I thought we'd be where we are today, I would have had no inclination that it was going to move as fast as it did. So any prediction right now is limited at best. Yeah, it, we need to think about systems and not the technology. Uh, systems meaning the systems of people. Well, know, and I think it's interesting yeah. you bring that up because even going back to what you brought up earlier about, yeah, I mean, there is some legitimate fear from people about, well, what does this mean for my job and the future of the work that I do? But no matter, I mean, and I've seen some of, some of the latest and pretty advanced stuff. And even with all the progress we've made, AI is still largely pretty stupid. I mean, it really is. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's intelligent, but again, going back to the human oversight and we still have not quite figured out an accountability model for AI either. And I think that's one of the other challenges we have and going back to it, if an email goes out, well, it doesn't matter if it was AI generated, we still don't blame the computer because at some point someone should have seen over reviewed, said, hey, signed off. There needs to be some level of human accountability and involvement or it the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, well, it's kind of curious that we're talking about these advanced tools that are doing amazing things and, and growing in capacity by orders of magnitude each year. 
but the consistent solution seems to be a reversion to personal responsibility and accountability and basic leadership fundamentals. Um, it does. You know, there, it's like the, the, the solution for some of this is to look inward and look at human development as a solution that is sustainable rather than putting limits on how technology will be utilized. So to me, I, I think that's a, a very curious aspect of this. Well, it goes back to, you know, as I look back over my entire career, some of my greatest innovations by technological standards would not have been very innovative at all, because just like what you said, where the true innovation came in was the development and the accountability and the going back to really, okay, let's make sure people are doing the right thing, P personal responsibility, um, you know, understanding and, and decision-making and all these different things. It's like, we get that right. Well, the technology will follow, but it does it in exponential components versus incremental steps because the people are able to actually unpack it at levels that they couldn't um, otherwise. Yeah. It, these are symbiotic relationships. Um, a company is a symbiotic relationship with whatever the technology it's building. And, you know, people in that company exist to move it forward, as well as the tools that the company uses exist to move it forward. But same with governments. I mean, heck, that's what a family is to some degree. Um, yeah. There is there's a purpose behind all these systems. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the people and the systems and whatever tools they implement. And um, I don't think that uh, perhaps there's an AI that's able to build a company in the next five years. Um, I'm curious how that works. An AI that builds a company that, you know, requires human interaction. I don't know. I mean, that that's the bleeding edge of things is can you create a whole a whole economy of non-human tools? Can tools sell the tools and, you know, create structures around the way the tools can communicate with each other? I don't know. Probably. At some I think point. the challenge with it is, and I've talked to some of these folks who are on the edge of this stuff, and the challenge they continue to run into with going too far with it is, one, the data continues to show people plus artificial intelligence consistently outperforms mm -hmm. people or artificial intelligence by itself, consistently oh, yeah. outperforms it. It's it just, there's no, there's no data that shows otherwise. So they run into that challenge, but then on top of it, you know, nothing is in isolation. And so really at the end of the day, even a company ultimately is interacting with people from a product standpoint. And mm -hmm. so the idea that you can create something that has no human involvement that ultimately interacts with people and delivers a product to people and services to people, it ends up falling apart. And so what they continue, at least to date, the folks that I've interacted with who have even done progressive things like, well, we're going to have a AI CEO. And it's like, well, but our whole structure is based on the AI CEO, but ultimately there's a board of advisors that have to. And it's like, well, so you still have people involved in the whole thing. You haven't ultimately eliminated that variable yet. And I have yet to see any anything that demonstrates that that's going away, period. You know, I, I don't, and this is just me off the top of my head, I don't think I've ever seen one algorithm that replaces one person in one organization. Like if you look at leadership books, like the CEO, a, 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 an algorithmic CEO, what what leadership style do they ascribe to? How do they take input? Are they more, do they lean more towards uh, authoritarian or, or collaborative? Which one's right? 
you know, <laughs> and when they do that, the next company over that's in competition, uh, should they be the exact same way? Or should they try to identify weaknesses and, and chip away at that moat using a different style? And so uh, the idea that you're going to have uh, one algorithm that that dictates one person's role in an organization is is fantasy to me. And I know that like that's what sells books. Somebody will come out with 11 steps to sure. be a great leader. But, yep. you know, there are so many different The dynamic ways. nature of the way the world works just doesn't yeah. work like that. I think there's some underlying themes, um, sure. but uh, you know, there is other themes. There are other ways to do it. There are a lot of ways to do it. And who's to say what's successful? Yeah, no, well, and I think that's, and then you stack on top of that, um, you know, going back to the accountability piece of it, you know, just again, in a hypothetical state, right? If we had an algorithmic political leader, or an algorithmic CEO, mm -hmm. when things hit the fan, what do you do about that then? And it creates this new set of problems of, well, can you fire an algorithm? If so, how? And what does that sure. look like? And how does that actually give, again, you, you're still dealing with people because people want to feel like somebody's been held accountable for these decisions. And saying that we, well, we tweaked our algorithm it's not the same as, well, we've ousted the CEO or this person is no longer in political power and we've brought someone else in that you've decided on type of a thing. There's, again, I've yet to see this play out in ways where I go, yeah, I can see this actually fundamentally replacing people. And to your point, I have yet to, and I've explored a lot of industries, lots of jobs, the one-to-one -one correlation of, so we can get rid of this one person by simply replacing them with AI. It's like, no, we can deconstruct their work and we might repurpose them. And yes, maybe we don't need as many people doing this many tasks, but the one-to-one -one conversion rate just doesn't, the math isn't there. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I'm thinking about the, the risk and the report, the risk report thing that we talked about earlier, but what's the value. And at some point, you know, uh, I, I'm thinking back to economy classes too, like, there's got to be a the the general view of a board or whoever determines CEO um, in your organization or voters, right? At some point, there's some view that the risk of switching horses is less than the risk of staying with the same one. And um, I don't I don't know that we can calculate that. I think just like an economic model, it exists on a graph, but in reality, it's just kind of this, in reality. <laughs> this kind of mess of feelings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some, some plurality of gut feelings moves, moves, uh, moves an entire uh, direction of a company. So, um, right. yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting, and again, who knows, have this conversation with me 12 months from now. I'm sure if we were to revisit this conversation, there would certainly, I think, be things that may adjust and adapt based on the conversation. But I think there are still some things that would reign true um, because I, I still just, I have not been convinced of some of the things that, again, they, they make good books, they make good headlines, you know, to say, you know, hey, in 10 years, we're all going to be sitting on a beach because AI is going to be running the world. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe that'll get a lot of clicks, but I've yet to see in practice anything play out that demonstrates that's a 
legitimate possibility. You know, I, I think just future casting here, and I'm an optimist, is that we we don't have a lack of anything because we have moved people out of um, roles that could be automated. In fact, we've created much more opportunities for employment and organizations and activities through that behavior because we're allowing people to to build up to a different layer of their abilities, right? Calculators, you know, NASA calculators, people in a room calculating were incredibly important until they weren't. Uh, but that didn't <laughs> stop that didn't stop the need for good people to do good things and to do very critical thought. And I, I think Yeah, that the work changed. When, I mean ultimately when, that's what happened. Yeah. The work changed. When I think about my organizations and it, the public sector is uh, it's it, it is a massive de-risking in some ways, but it also is uh, uh, the ability of us to be able to utilize people in a, a role where they have a virtual team and they're able to accomplish, I think, things that that they would like to accomplish. That is not just looking up files and I'm not discounting the work, but um, no. It is no, because I think to your yeah. point, and this goes back to the work that you're in. Right. That work is important and has to get done. And there's not currently a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. But if you were to ask people, is this the best use of your time? I think almost unanimously, people would probably say, well, no. I mean, there are better things. Again, even going back to what you said earlier, it's not like anybody's sitting around going, if I didn't have this to do, there'd be nothing else to do. It's just a matter of, I have to get this work done. And because of that, there are other things I could get to, but I can't because of that. And so I think even just listening to some of the things you've described, mm -hmm. it's rings true to a lot of the other things I see where it's like, yeah, AI may be a great assistant to help public sectors and government automate and streamline a lot of that, go out, find this information so that people's time is spent more on, hey, making sure that we're getting the right information to the right people. Did they get what they needed? All of this, we speed that time up. We're able to provide a higher level of service and quality, but it's not necessarily saying, well, now we don't need anybody because we just have an AI mayor who runs an AI staff and that's how our governments run. Uh, man, uh, an AI mayor could be an interesting thing one day, um, an AI politician. <laughs> I, I don't imagine people would trust them any less. So, um, yeah, that's it. Who knows? Like, if you if you had if you were that that connected with technology, you know, maybe there's some way to have pure democracy. Whether that's a good or bad thing is is up for debate. But, um, yeah. Now, I I think the the theme here that's important is that you're not going to separate the two. Like you're not going to put the genie back in the bottle with AI. Um, no. And AI is not going to be functional at replacing people entirely in organizations. Um, and the best organizations are going to be those that utilize AI with great human talent um, in a symbiotic way. Just, I mean, just like a, a human punching a nail with their hand is not going to be as effective as a human hitting a nail with a hammer. Um, yeah, yep. it's it's just using a different tool to to continue to advance what it is you're trying to do better. Right. Well, and when we came out with power tools, construction workers weren't out of work. They just mm -hmm. changed the way they did their work because there were power tools now that made things move 
quicker. So where, where are you on that journey now as you look at, I mean, obviously you've got your company, but as you look at the work you're doing in the public government sector, where are you on that journey now? Because I, as I continue to talk to people, they're in different stages of this. Uh, which journey? The journey of kind of starting to explore and incorporate artificial intelligence into the work. Oh man, um, I through the company, I I hope that we are rapidly innovating um, okay. and ahead of the ahead of the adoption curve. I, I believe we are. We connect with a lot of communities. And the ones that you know, have been to the the workshops I presented or something like that, you know, they've implemented some sort of a, a committee to look at AI use cases. But those, I think, are the the leading edge communities. Um, and in my city, you know, we we don't have AI as a dedicated process for anything. Um, yeah. I use I utilize it personally for things that will save me, you know, five or ten hours here or there. Um, and I know some members of my staff are kind of forward leaning in technology and they're certainly toying around with how to implement it. There is no outside software that is dedicated for government that has fully okay. integrated AI in any functional way yet. Um, but okay. I, hopefully I know a guy who's who's putting that together. But um, so I think right now we're still poking at the edges and really just reiterating again, the, the human piece of this is that should you implement this um, or should you utilize it? It is still your product. Um, and that's internally how we've approached it is just reiterating that ultimately, you know, if you're the police chief, you're responsible for the things that come out of your department. If you're, you know, the finance director, again, if you, if you utilize this heavily, that's fine, but you still have to have an understanding of how it's being utilized. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because there is this um, individual component to it, and then there's this collective organizational component to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while you said that different industries are in different spaces, based on what you shared, seems to mirror a lot of what I'm seeing with a lot of different organizations I work with from all different sectors and all different industries, which is we're in this stage where a lot of people are experimenting with it on an individual level. They're figuring out, hey, this is where it really helps me with some of the work that I'm doing type of a thing. The broader, more organizational, broad brush, like here's where it's affecting you know, universal policy or universal process in an organization. It's far more limited. And in many ways, I continue to see it almost being more effective, at least today, as an individual augment to an individual. Like it's almost an augmentation to the individual as they mm -hmm. figure out like these tools really help me with these kinds of tasks. Because a lot of the work that happens right now is still largely happening through people. And so they really are the ones that know, well, this is what I typically do and here's where AI can do that. And because work is often very dynamic, I, I haven't run into a lot of organizations that have almost universally said, here's where we've used AI to streamline this. And this is the platform we have that has automated all of these different things. It's it's still very early stage for, I think, a lot of people right now, despite the fact that we've seen AI mature so quickly over the last 12 months. Oh, indeed. You know, I, so there was a period of time where um, job postings would require that you knew Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel. And I think that those... 
those job postings largely don't exist anymore. Like it's just kind of assumed that if you're in this environment, you, you know, that technology. you know how to use office tools. Right. <laughs> and so there was a period of time where that wasn't, you know, in 1980, you didn't have a job posting or 1990, you didn't have a job posting that said you need to know Microsoft Word. Probably there for 10, 15 years between 95 and 2010, you know, job postings and resumes would require those skills. Now yep. it's kind of assumed. I don't think we've reached the point where job postings require AI skills. And some point, no. some point here in the next couple of years, that is going to be, you'll need it on your resume. Yep. At some point, a couple of years after that, is just going to be assumed that you know how to do it. Um, yep. And so right now, you know, it's not even, it hasn't even hit our job postings yet. So how are we doing yeah. as an organization? It We're aware, you know, poking around, people are playing with it, but there's been no systemic integration of AI in, in really any organization I know about that's not an AI company. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny you say that because I would... It's going to be interesting to watch how this happens, but I would agree with you that that's probably where we're going to start to see this stuff start to integrate first is, you know, as part of people's jobs, there will just become this rising expectation that, yeah, we may not have a system or a process that we specifically explicitly say, here's where we do it. But we do have an underlying assumption that for you to get this job, you should be familiar with generative AI tools you should be using them as part of your regular discourse. You should know how to interact with, you know, doing basic prompt engineering, some of these things to be able to assist you with your work. And I think mm -hmm. we're just in that early stage, but I think it's a great opportunity for people who are thinking about this, whether you're in government, corporate, academic, it doesn't matter where you are to go. These are the real skills that you can start to build today that are actually going to future-proof you for the beginning. And that's a lot less scary because if you ask somebody now, Hey, if you don't know how to use office tools, you're probably not going to get a job or you're going to struggle to find a job. Nobody freaks out and goes, Oh my gosh, the world's changing around me. And I think that's where we're going to be. And I think the timeline's going to be much shorter, but probably in the next few years. You know, I, I try to put in, in my slide deck uh, for uh, workshops at, at conferences and, you know, anyone who wants a speaker on AI and its intersection at conferences, I'm, I'm open to it. Um, and I enjoy having these conversations. Um, but um, I, I try to put in there, AI is not going to replace your job, probably. It's, it's somebody using AI, you know, somebody yes. that has made it part of their, you know, made it part of their tool set is going to be what's going to replace you. Um, so that's, I think the, we, we go back to AI as this kind of like Skynet type technology. It, that's not, you know, I don't think that is a reasonable fear. I think the reasonable fear is, are you going to be outpaced by somebody who's integrated it into their own personal workflow faster? Yeah. Which when you look back at the history of technological innovations, that's historically how it's always played out. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not unreasonable to think the same thing is going to be true. I mean, back in finance, the people who were learning Excel, instead of using their, you know, ledger books, the first people to start doing that were the people in finance who were most marketable as things change because they knew how to be more efficient and more effective. They were able to do these things. And, you know, it just was one of those same things. That's, that seems to be the overall trend that I'm seeing, regardless of industry and sector that people are in right now. Well, that's that's the engine of any economy is value. 
the value proposition and demand for that value proposition. And um, people are still the most important commodity in any organization. I, I wouldn't even classify people as a commodity in most cases, right? Like people are no. the most important aspect of any organization. And we are, I think, talking about decommoditizing some people and turning them into, you know, a very valuable tool that's up-leveled through connection with these tools. Yeah. I actually think based on my assessment of things, the more AI continues to rise, the more valuable people will become because of the unique value proposition they will bring to the organization as AI automates some of these things that there's a lot of non-value add activity that people are doing in any organization. I mean, you describe some of the stuff happening in government. I can tell you from academic mm -hmm. and corporate sectors, there's a lot of stuff intertwined with work that is just non-value add and AI taking that out actually increases the value proposition of the work that's still being done by people. Okay. Yeah. Well, like I said, maybe we'll have to revisit this conversation in 12 months and see if our minds have been radically changed. Um, I don't think they will, but it's it's going to be interesting to see. And I think it's awesome that you're looking at how technology can optimize and streamline. Um, like you said, you made it as a joke in the beginning, but you know, government is not necessarily known for innovation and optimization like that. And I think the fact that you're leaning in on that uh, is, is fantastic. So keep up the awesome work. Well, thank you. Um, in 12 months, you can talk to the algorithmic maker, algorithmic mayor and, uh, <laughs> let me know how yeah. it goes. <laughs> I'll do a podcast with the algorithmic mayor of your, of your city. So, I, you know, well, I, Josh, thank you. Go ahead. Go for it. No, I was gonna say, what you say? uh, there's this, uh, so my company's part of, uh, tech stars, if you're familiar with it, but it's a, a cohort yep. of companies that, um, one of them is uh, really advanced with uh, AI voice generation, um, okay. and um, I think I think their name is Talkit right now. And um, and they took audio of me in a meeting, and I just gave them audio of me, and then I gave them a script. And so I, I try to terrify cities with like, imagine your mayor leaves this voice message on your answering machine and asks you to do these things. This isn't just go get me a gift card. This is their voice asking you a question. And um, so, you know, uh, already some tools can mimic my voice and my my own unique phrasing of words and how I speak. All you need is a script. Yeah. And uh, so maybe you can have an interview with, a, with an algorithmic me here in 12 months. I wouldn't put it outside of the realm of reality. I, I, the thing with it is I wouldn't put it outside the realm of possibility. In fact, I've got someone who I've got a plan to actually have a three-way conversation with two of us and an AI bot. But the thing with it is my interactions continue to be, they're far less interesting than people. Um, and it's yeah. really only when people are behind the curtains, pulling the strings that it's actually interesting to see what happens. So it's a it's a unique and distinct future we have ahead of us, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic about it. I'm just more we're going to see some not Let's so see. great things and we're going to see some amazing things. It's going to be both. All right, yeah. well Josh, thank you so much for the time and uh for joining me. Thanks everybody for watching and listening and uh yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your week. We will be back next week. Thank you, sir.